If you could go to Mars, but you knew you would never come back, would you go? Welcome to Untitled, the only podcast where we spend the entire episode trying to decide what to name it. Um, I thought of a name. You got a name? What kind of, what's your name? Dave. We want to name the podcast Dave. I have never met a Dave I didn't like. I'll tell that to Goliath. Anyway. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, what's, what's your name? Who are you? Who am I talking to? I'm Digby, and I'm a political scientist. I'm Matt. I'm a robotics engineer. And what do you think? You want to just start it? You want me to talk to you about Mars? Go ahead, Matt. Take it away. NASA, through Project Artemis, wants to reestablish a presence on the moon by 2024. The goal is subject to change. However, it was originally 2018. This mission will be using the Space Launch System, SLS, the rocket NASA has been developing since 2007. Once back on the moon, NASA will create the Lunar Gateway, a space station similar to the ISS, but larger, that will orbit around the moon. This will make missions to the moon's surface easier, as well as provide a way station for ships going further to Mars. NASA is under presidential order to land on Mars by 2033. They currently do not have a plan for returning from Mars. The SLS uses solid fuel that can only be made on Earth, making it extremely difficult to make their own fuel to get back from Mars. Uh, I heard a little chuckle about 2033. You think that's funny? I just like the idea of uh, the President of the United States getting to assign a time. Because if the President wants it, science is going to have to step aside. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you didn't You didn't know that uh, the laws of physics are subject to executive orders? Actually, we learned about that last semester. Oh, okay. That's that's the political science, right? Yeah, that's uh that's what I'm here for. SpaceX's goals are a little more ambitious. Instead of using the solid fuel SLS runs on, their Raptor engines will use methane, which is not only plentiful on Earth but can also be made on Mars. Uh, the Starship Super Heavy is their proposed ship to get to Mars, and it'll be built in two parts. The Starship is the actual vessel where the crew and all the cargo and everything will be. Uh, and the Super Heavy are the boosters. Uh, the Starship will come in four parts, uh, or four variants, sorry. Uh, and each one of these will have a different function. So the, their main variant will be a thousand-person intercontinental transport. So that will uh, take, over for, in, take over in place of planes and be able to fly anybody anywhere in the world in under an hour. Uh, the the 100-person interplanetary model will have room for a 100-person crew and enough space for them to be on the ship for months at a time with all the cargo and everything that they need. And that's the variant that will be used to bring people to Mars. And then they have two more. It's the cargo and the fuel variant. So the cargo one is just like the 100-person interplanetary or the 1,000-person intercontinental, except for instead of people, it's just cargo. So all of the equipment on there, it'll all be automated. Uh, and then the fuel is a big fuel tanker that will launch to the moon uh, and take more fuel than it needs to get up there. And that will be used for refueling ships uh, on the moon before they go on the trip to Mars because you can't carry up enough fuel for getting off of Earth and getting to Mars. Um, those last two are important because that's the first step that they're going to take in putting people on Mars. Uh, so the timeline for these two ships, uh, Starship, they're going to try and have a working version that they're testing and working with by the end of this year 
and they're going to start testing versions of the Super Heavy by the end of next year. And these dates are actually really important because there's really a short window when we can get to Mars. Um, so there's a... With the way that the orbits work with the Earth and Mars, there's a window every two years that opens where it's the perfect time to send a vessel to Mars. So Earth is orbiting around the Sun, and Mars will be coming up right behind it, and it will pass right next to Earth. And so if you launch a ship out towards Mars and let it intercept, it's called the Mars Transfer Orbit Window, and that makes that trip to Mars take about five months which is really not that long compared to some of the other early estimates. Um, so the five-month trip to Mars, and that can be made every two years. Starting in quarter one of 2022, they will be sending one to two cargo ships to Mars every two years. These could be carrying anything from supplies for future missions, surveillance robots, robots for constructing settlements, buildings, things like that, and anything else um, that they could feasibly want to get to Mars before the people make it there. Uh, all of these super heavy uh, cruisers will land and unload themselves. Uh, so any of the surveillance robots will just do their tasks that they're assigned. Uh, and all the construction robots, if they're autonomous, uh, that technology is still being developed. Uh, but they will get to work building these settlements before any people arrive there. Uh, and so we'll have two to three maybe four of these cargo launches happen before any people are considered to be sent to Mars. So they got to get all that. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of energy to move stuff to Mars. So they got to get all of that over there. Um, and then in 2028 or 2030, depending on how things are looking, uh, that's when the first mission of people will launch to Mars. This will be using the 100-person variant of the Starship, with a crew composed of people with the skills necessary to make first contact with Mars and establish a presence. Uh, so this isn't going to be your uh, your best in the field doctors and physicists and things like that. These will be uh, boots on the ground, blue collar people that are, are technicians and scientists uh, that are there to set up all the equipment and establish the base that we'll have on Mars. Uh, and then depending on the ability of the construction robots, the crew will have to either start moving into the buildings that are already there or start building buildings out of the Martian soil. Um, and if the buildings aren't made yet, they're going to have to make, uh, the crew is going to have to stay on the ship for a lot of the time. They're not going to be able to go out and spend uh, a significant amount of time out on Mars. Uh, and then after two years in that next window, one to two more ships will probably launch to Mars, bringing, uh, another one to 200 people uh, to the surface, bringing that total up to about 300 people on the surface of Mars. They will continue working on the base that's established there and potentially branch out to other parts of the planet for various research and mining projects. Um, what's the caveat to going to Mars? Uh, why would you not want to go to Mars? Uh, you're probably not going to be able to come back. That's the big one. Um, at least not for a little while. So I mentioned earlier that we're able to make methane on Mars. That's through a process called reverse Sabatier. Uh, and that's taking all of the ingredients. So it's the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen uh, that's necessary to make methane and producing it through uh, elements in the soil. But it's a very, very slow process. And that combined with the amount of fuel necessary to make the trip from Mars to Earth, uh, it's going to take a long time to generate all that methane. Uh, and then, so we're talking uh, between 5, 10, 20 years before you're going to be able to make a return trip back. 
and by that time, you're not going to be in the best shape of your life. Mars gravity is a third what it is on Earth. Uh, and that's going to contribute to a lot of muscle and bone atrophy. That's going to make it a lot harder to come back. Once you come back to the higher gravity on Earth, uh, bad things can happen. Your muscles will not be able to support your own body. You could be confined to a wheelchair uh, or just have no, no control over your limbs because you're not used to the heavy gravity. Uh, and that's without the use of drugs or uh, you, you physically you cannot work out enough on Mars to be able to survive Earth's gravity after an extended period of time. Uh, and that's not even mentioning the massive amounts of radiation on the surface. Because of Mars's magnetic poles, there's not a lot of protection from solar flares, uh, which makes it really dangerous to be out on the surface of Mars, especially unprotected. Uh, and even, even ships have a hard time protecting over extended periods of time. Uh, and this could be mitigated by underground shelters, but how long do you really think humans would last living in bomb shelters for extended periods of time? Um, so with all that... Digby, I'm going to put this out to you. The year is 2030. You're a spry 31 years old when SpaceX puts out a challenge. Anyone who wants to go to Mars on their 2032 mission, apply now. Would you do it? Would you answer the call of the wild, the tra travel into the unknown, the final frontier, knowing you probably wouldn't make it back to Earth? Well, Matt, despite that picture of paradise that you just painted for us both, I think I might have some reservations. For me, uh, the answer at the top of our discussion is probably going to be a hard no. Um, it sounds like the conditions out there would be really staggering. And the idea of not being able to make a return journey is frightening. I think I, my personal set of skills is much more acclimated to the culture and atmosphere and gravity of planet Earth, uh, and I will have to leave the Martian colonization to engineers and brave souls such as yourself. Well, that's it. That's the podcast. We answered the question. All right. That was fun. Cool. I like that. We should do this again. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about this a little bit more, because this is not the first time that we've had an opportunity to send colonies of people to another area right this man's really about to about to convince me to go to mars i it might happen well that's that's my goal by the end of this we're gonna we're both signing up you will have to cannon me as of right now i give me two years i'll make some i'll figure it out this podcast gonna last two years i it'll take me two years to make a cannon all right you were saying so Digby, I want to pose something interesting to you with this concept of sending a colony of two Mars and sending uh, between 300, 200 to 300 people to Mars by 2034. That's a pretty ambitious goal. Um, but I think it resembles something very similar that we've seen in the past. Uh, and the best example of it that I found is westward expansion. And the, the movement of the migration of peoples to a new and kind of unexplored land with the technology that makes it difficult to survive there. I would say that uh, our ability to survive in Colorado in 1810 is pretty comparable to our ability to survive on Mars in 2035. Uh, what do you think about that? 
So you're referring to European uh, settlers who have already landed in the American mainland, um, and then, and by now are American colonists uh, moving west into uh, across the frontier. Correct. I am referring to that. And so one of the great things I think about Mars is this is our first opportunity to have a colonization group that doesn't involve mass genocide. Um, That'd be a plus. Because while. While to them it was relatively unexplored, uh, there was already people living there. And I think we can safely say as of right now that there are no indigenous peoples living anywhere on Mars that we have to worry about. Man, that's probably not the first time someone said very similar sentences to that in world history. (laughs) I don't think previously we put that much consideration into it. I think that you raise a good point about the difficulties of of moving into uncharted territory being similar to they are now. Um, but I think that the unique challenge of getting the people from Earth to Mars uh, might require us to move this anecdote back a few hundred years. Say like the voyage of, of Leif Erikson. Um, you know, that is. Yeah, uh, I think so. You want to remind me who Leif Erikson is? So Leif Erikson is, and there's evidence for this, Leif Erikson is the Viking uh, who traveled from Europe and landed in North America uh, around the year 1000, I think it was. Um, And the Vikings didn't think much of it. Like, this is buried in a manuscript about his father, Eric the Red. Um, But he sailed just looking for new places uh, to sort of colonize. The Vikings weren't really a colonizing bunch, but more to, like, they were looking for sources of furs and, and other uh, trade commodities, which is a common theme throughout the history of coloniza- uh, colonialization. Colonialism? Colonialism. Colonization? Yeah. I'm going to say colonialism now, but, uh, but yeah, I think I meant colonization. One Rough. I thought, I thought that's the thing you're supposed to be good at, the words. Um... Yeah, so Leif Erikson and his crew, they arrive in uh, what they call Wineland or Vinland, which people think is either in present-day uh, Dalmatia or Newfoundland. And they pretty much immediately, they, they sailed their, their ship uh, upstream. That was something Viking ships were uniquely equipped to do because they had shallower keels. Uh, they parked in this lake, and they immediately just got out and started building a house. And then they went out, they encountered... Uh, uh, indigenous peoples, who they referred to as the Skrellings, and they had both trade relations and conflict with them. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, they really were at least partially settling this new land. They built uh, this lodge and a series of other buildings. They established a point for uh, Vikings to return to in the future, and then they returned back to Europe with uh, a boat, a ship full of furs and grapes and vines. That was their so they had a rather successful journey, uh, and then he, uh, all of his brothers followed suit. If the if the saga is to be believed, so I think that um, imperative to understanding this in a historical context. I think the journey of getting to Mars is as important, if not more important, than the actual uh, problems of settlement. Well, if you want to look at it that way, and I think that's a really good uh, like glass to put it under. Um, and I think a great example for that is the journey across the Atlantic for any colonization uh if you go to the 16 the 1700s when we were first landing um on the east coast of what is now the united states 
Think about the early settlements of like Jamestown, um, where you've got a group of people that when they land there, they're relatively cut off from the rest of civilization. Uh, After a three, four month journey across the Atlantic um, with uh, when they when they land there, if they're surviving the winter, I would I would say that surviving the winter in the United States in 1700 is about you've got about the same survival chances you do surviving the surface of Mars uh, in the future. It's really hard to try and make an accurate comparison between these two scenarios, because even though thematically they're very similar, I feel like the thousands of engineers and the billions of dollars you need just to be able to to breathe once you land on Mars, to, to move more than five feet from your vessel, um, to to live out more than a week. I think that the challenges faced settling in the Americas were similar to the challenges that would have been faced settling anywhere in Europe if somebody left their homeland and went to a an uncharted bit of a wilderness. Um, but I think it is hard to make that comparison to a different planet where the laws of, of gravity are different. Um, you can't breathe the atmosphere. Like, at least there was a template they had to work off of uh, expanding within their own continent. Yeah, you bring up a good point there, and I think that is really one of the biggest differences between uh, these two settlement periods is the, the difference in the surface of Mars. It's a 100% different, and we can't breathe the atmosphere we're not used to the gravity. Uh, we can't handle the radiation. It is very different conditions. Uh, and that's also conducive to um, the kind of people that are going to be going over to Mars versus the kind of people that were going west and coming, traveling west over the Atlantic beforehand and any sort of movement period. Uh, because your, your early migrants, your settlers, things like people like that, uh, their reason that whether or not they could go was less about their technical skills. It was more about, did you have the money? Could you afford a, a boat ticket or the cattle that you needed to travel on the Oregon trail? Uh, did you have a willingness to go? Because there is a good chance you weren't coming back back then. Um, and that was about it. All you, all you needed was the resources and the, the will how, um, and that's not the same for Mars. Uh, you are still going to have to want to go. That's that's a given. Um, but that monetary component is going to be replaced instead by a, a technical component. So rather than people that can afford the equipment, you're looking at people who the, the, the money is going to come from the companies, the corporations that are sending people or the nations that are sending people out to Mars. Uh, and it's more about, are you qualified to go? So it's, do you want to go and are you qualified versus do you want to go and can you afford the supplies? And I think that's a big distinction between the two. Why don't you tell me a little about the sur- uh, surface of Mars, Matt, from a layman's perspective, or rather in layman's terms? Well, the surface of Mars is, uh, let's let's start by saying it's very different than what we're used to here on Earth. Um, it's What? I think, can you believe it? It's crazy. Uh, Mars, let's start with the atmosphere. We'll start up top and kind of work our way down to the surface. So the atmosphere of Mars is 100 times thinner than Earth's, and it's 95% carbon dioxide. 
Um, so I don't know how much you know about biology and how lungs work, um, but your lungs cannot breathe 95% carbon dioxide. Just My can't. lungs can hardly breathe anything. I have terrible asthma. Yeah, you're going to have to bring a second inhaler if you go over to Mars. Cool. That'll fix it. I, it's about all you need. Maybe, maybe like a scuba tank or something. Probably fine. So it's 95% carbon dioxide. What else is there? It's 95% carbon dioxide. It's uh, the the other 5% is a mixture of nitrogen, argon, a little bit of oxygen, uh, and some other random particulates and elements. Uh, there's a lot of dust suspended in the atmosphere on Mars. So if everybody knows, it's a big, red, dusty planet. Uh, a lot of that dust is iron dust um, or just crushed up rocks. Uh, and Mars is known for having some of the worst dust storms in the solar system. They last for months on end and they can take over the entire planet. Um, so if you're living on Mars, you deal with a dust storm where you can't leave your building for two months because it's just raging outside. Uh, and it's also a lot colder on Mars than it is on Earth. Part of that is because it doesn't have an atmosphere and part of that's just because it's further away from the sun. Uh, it averages about negative 80 degrees fahrenheit on the surface it's it's got a max cold of about negative 195 degrees fahrenheit that's about negative 125 degrees celsius at the poles at the equator it gets up to a balmy 70 degrees fahrenheit or 20 degrees celsius um so that that temperature is doable there uh but if the cold doesn't get you the radiation will uh, like I said earlier, there's a lot of radiation from solar flares and the atmosphere and the magnetic poles do not provide good protection on the surface. All right, Matt. So let's say I heard you tell me that Mars's atmosphere was 95% carbon dioxide covered in dense, huge dust storms and absolutely lambasted by radiation. And I thought, huh, that sounds like the place for me. What would it be like for me stepping off of that ship trying to live on a colony on Mars? What's the day-to-day -day like? Well, the day-to-day, -day, you're definitely not going to be stepping off the ship that much, um, especially early on uh, when the facilities aren't well-established. There might not even be buildings on the surface. It might just be your landing ship. Uh, the, the missions outside onto the surface are going to be really sparse. That's for a couple of reasons. One, uh, just the the amount of equipment that they have. Uh, you can't. There's cargo space is really limited, so you can only bring so much with you. And also the radiation. Uh, you, just like with spacewalks off the ISS, you gotta you gotta limit that time and that exposure because the spacesuits don't block that much radiation. Um, and we've seen from people like Scott Kelly, who spent a year at the ISS. Uh, and when he came back, he had his DNA was representing differently than his twin brothers. And that's a sign that even on a contained spaceship, you're getting some damage from radiation. We want to try and minimize that as much as we can. Um, so things will go on. Buildings will start to be produced uh, and people will start to move off of the main ship. Um, that can be for a couple of reasons. Um, everybody might not be returning. So if they get to a point where there's enough fuel uh, everybody that came on that first ship will probably not be going back. Some may be staying. Uh, and also with that, the there's going to be a lot of different buildings. Houses will start to be established. And that's just part of the human condition. Can you, I mean, can you imagine living on those tight quarters of that ship? You spend five months just traveling through space 
and you land on the surface of Mars and you still can't get off the ship. You're stuck there. Uh, can you imagine what that would do to somebody? I've never once in my life equated the human condition to the claustrophobia and absolute bathing and radiation that one experiences on and after a journey to Mars. Uh, but I will keep that in mind for my next novel. I think a couple of people have beat you to that one. So, I don't know if you're familiar with um, a little book called The Martian. I definitely read that book before you. I definitely read that book. Um, oh. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, books and reading them is great. Uh, All right. All right. So I'm actually not going to talk about The Martian. I'm going to talk about a different book that he wrote called Artemis. Have you heard about that one? I definitely read the first two chapters of that book. What are your thoughts on that book? It was really short, but there might have been more of it after the second chapter. I don't know. I didn't stick around to find out. That does not reflect necessarily poorly on Andy Weir because I absolutely loved The Martian. It was one of my favorite books in high school. I tore through it in like a matter of hours. Um... Not a very long book. But uh, when I picked up Artemis, uh, I was borrowing it from my little brother who was borrowing it from the library, and I just did not have the time to be reading it. So probably sometime I'll pick it up again. But uh, tell me about Artemis, Matt. So Artemis is about a colony on the moon. Um, but it provides a really good example for what a colony on Mars would probably look like. Uh, Andy Weir does a phenomenal job of researching his subjects and if you know anything about the martian it's a very accurate book and artemis is the same uh and the way that the city runs in artemis is there it's all foundries so within the surface within the regolith of the moon and also of mars there's a lot of minerals so uh aluminum and iron ores and things of that nature and so by smelting those down you one create the main product is the ingots that you're creating either of aluminum or steel or whatever else uh, but that process as a byproduct creates oxygen uh, and that's the oxygen that in artemis they use for the settlement on the moon uh, and for the mars colony that's potentially where they could get their oxygen from uh, and then that creates not only um, a product and a resource for Mars, but that creates uh, an economic benefit to a colony on Mars. And that's a really important part of colonization because there needs to be a reason for that to be there. It can't just be research. Uh, and a good example of that is Antarctica. We haven't established very much in Antarctica. And a lot of that is because there's no economic value there. It's only value is research. Um, so it doesn't have a big establishment. Mm -hmm. i feel like mining your oxygen or rather collecting the byproduct of of smelting ingots as your primary source of what should be a renewable resource is kind of a a limited investment does that do they have a, a contingency plan for once that no longer becomes a sustainable method for the colony what what other ways are there of uh producing oxygen well i mean at what point are you gonna run out of surface material uh, I mean, at some point, you'll run out of the ability to transport that surface material back to where you are. Or you'll run into a, to some sort of a snag, or your colony will go past the amount that the oxygen can maintain. Uh, well, there's two other ways that you can get oxygen for a colony, um, assuming that your capacity is over that that your forges can produce. Uh, and one of those is carbon scrubbing. 
Um, so that is removing the carbon dioxide from the uh, atmosphere that you've created and either turning that back into oxygen or removing it from the atmosphere altogether. Because uh, that's the... Humans create a lot of carbon dioxide when we oh, exhale. Oh, you don't say. It's... It's oh, when we exhale. Sorry, I thought you were talking about the imminent destruction of our own planet because of global warming. I blame the cows for that one. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that on another episode. I got a good idea. I've got a good idea for that one. Um, no, we just when we exhale, we create a lot of carbon dioxide, and it's really important to remove that from the atmosphere uh, as well as supplement the oxygen that we breathe. Uh, so the carbon scrubbers will remove the carbon dioxide uh, through vents and either uh, s- separate the oxygen from the carbon or re- just release it back onto Mars. Uh, and then the other way is through our greenhouses. So one of the things that we know through our research is that the Mars soil is actually very fertile. And we can grow crops fairly easily on the surface of Mars. So uh, with very little uh, sheltering from the conditions and some climate control, uh, we're able to grow crops that will also produce oxygen from the carbon dioxide for us. Um, So with the scale of all three of those things combined, uh, that should provide enough oxygen for the colony once it's created. Now, I know you're not an atmospheric scientist, so I apologize apologize that I'm asking you all of these very difficult questions and expecting you to answer them. Oh, I am, um, but, I am absolutely summarizing here, and a lot of this is theoretical and speculation, but that's, I think that's part of the fun part, is seeing what's going to happen and watching kind of science fiction turn into fact. Well, then that leads me to my next question, since you're so confident that you can continue this string of theorizing. Um, what is the likelihood that humans could successfully terraform Mars as a planet. Like, we've been talking about the very initial stages of colonization. These little settlements starting from the ship slowly advancing to be a few enclosed buildings where there's a a delicate atmosphere maintained inside. Do you think there's any possibility that one day humans might be able to alter the the larger climate of Mars and make it something that more resembles Earth? Well, the energy requirements that that would take the amount of mass we would have to have to put in Mars's atmosphere to make it resemble that of earth is astronomical. Uh, I think that is something that we won't see in our lifetimes. I think that's something our grandchildren won't see in their lifetimes. Uh, the, the research for that is really out there. Um, and I think a lot of the, the research that needs to be done on changing the atmosphere of Mars needs to happen on mars uh so we're we're a long way away from even conceptualizing terraforming on mars so we've talked a lot about what mars is going to look like in terms of a colony and its structure its infrastructure and how it operates uh but something we haven't really talked about is the kind of person that is going to go to mars and that is twofold it's the technical skills like the jobs that are going to be on mars but it's also a mentality uh and what do you think what kind of mentality is it going to take for somebody that's going to go and live on mars well right off the bat i could think of uh two traits that would uh prevent someone from taking the trip to mars and i have both of them the first is that i lack 
the technical aspect uh, by a wide margin. Mars isn't looking for writers. Uh, it's not looking for speakers. Mars is looking for engineers and people who can actually lay the foundation, work with their hands, not die on Mars, which would be my first agenda item would be die on Mars. <laughs> the second trait that I think it's perhaps not the most important, but I think it would be very important if you were really going to consign yourself to living the rest of your life on a different planet would be not having any real terrestrial connections that you care about. Um, like there's, you know, going into foreign service or sometimes the military, people find themselves in situations where they don't want to be tied down. Uh, I think that going to Mars is that times a billion because you'll never see these people again. Uh, at best, you'll get to send maybe a small text message back to them every once in a while. It's with an eight minute delay, right? Eight minutes. Is that correct? Uh, it's somewhere between 20 and 50 minutes, depending on is eight where the moon. Mar- no, eight is how is is the speed of light between sun and the earth. I just yeah mixed up. There you go. Yeah, it's uh depending on the position. So if the sun is in between Mars and Earth, it takes about fifty minutes. Um, but when Earth is closer, it can get down to around twenty. Wild. Yeah. So I don't think that anybody who has a, any sort of strong connection, whether it's uh, a loved one, whether it's family, whether it's a career that could end up not in space. I think those kind of people are more likely to, you know, reject this sort of offer and, and decide to stay on earth. The kind of person who would go to Mars beyond having the technical skills is somebody with a sense of adventure, uh, no, nothing tying them down on earth. Uh, and assuming that uh, NASA, SpaceX have quite a vetting process for their candidates, which I'm sure they do, they would need to possess the kind of temperament that allows them to work with people and to be in close confines with the same people for incredibly long numbers of time. Numbers of time. (laughs) So many time numbers. Incredibly long amounts of time. Yeah, and I think this one we can really compare to... uh to settlers because that that mentality that you had to you have to have to go out on your own or with a small group of people and just exist in a place where people haven't existed or without any other people is insane uh, i mean there's a there's a lot of cultures around the world that have you know their entire history is is marked by by movement and exploration there's nomadic cultures you know in in central asia in uh, Indonesia, who, you know, they, their entire history is one of moving from place to place. Uh, it only seems like a big thing because we have to go to Mars. <laughs> That's a, And we, I mean, for a, a long time in our specific history, uh, we haven't had to live in a, a small colony like that. Uh, that's very we're we're very far removed from that. So going back to it seems like a, a, a big jump. Um, yeah, great, great leap backwards. Uh, we're thinking one step forward and two steps back. Some might say. I think that uh, beyond what kind of person sets foot on Mars first, I think there's then the ensuing question of what kind of society do you find on Mars? Because obviously, in this sort of a scientific 
colonization gig, it's very much hierarchy of the people back on Earth are giving the orders, and the people on Mars can't really do anything except follow them. I mean, if they want to live, they all they really can do is is work and, and build up their colony and perform experiments and try to make it more livable for the people who come after them. But let's say, maybe not in the concept of a terraforming, but maybe um, just the colony gets bigger and time passes. What What kind of society would form once you didn't have to spend all day, every day, just trying to stay alive? Well, I'd say the the society that's going to take place on Mars is going to be so much different from anything that we have here on Earth just because of the limited space that you're going to be in. Uh, and I think, uh, this is a little out there, but I think the number one technological innovation that's going to be running parallel to Mars exploration is VR technology. And I say that... I was going to say contraception, but go off. Uh, I didn't want to... I don't want to go that far, but I mean, it's someday there'll be the first baby born on Mars, and that'll be great if it's been a twenty-year colony and they're starting to expand. It'll be very, very bad if it's day one. I, we still do not know if a baby can even be born on Mars. Um, that's actually a really interesting thing to talk about. I'm uh, glad I brought it up. So, let's talk about this because we can say with pretty realistic certainty that if a child could be born on Mars, they would not be able to go back to Earth. They would never be able to step foot on Earth for a number of reasons. Well, we've already established that anyone who spent any meaningful amount of time on Mars wouldn't be able to go back to Earth. Uh, and so the, what, it, what does that say about your humanity if you're not able to live on, I guess, your home planet? Like what is the difference between a person from Mars and a person from Earth? Well, I mean, at first that question is, you know, purely social. Like, would people, would humans who spent their entire lives were born on a planet that is not the human home planet, um, are they, are they human? But uh, I think more meaningful is if you take that question and let's say this Martian experiment is successful, you, you just throw it hundreds of thousands hundreds of millions of years into the future. Let's say that Martian colonization is successful, sustainable, and we survive. At some point, the adaptations needed to survive in a lower gravity environment, an atmosphere that's that's partially artificial, would be vastly different than the adaptations that we developed on Earth in order to survive in our own environment. So there's the question of already, like, socially, what does this mean for humans who are born on Mars? But now... When it becomes biological, are these people even human anymore? At that point, you've got a branch uh, in the evolutionary tree. Does that make sense? Yeah, a second period of human evolution. And that's really interesting because a lot of people uh, have been saying recently that we've sort of stopped human evolution uh, as a whole because of uh, medical technology and uh, our abilities to increase the lifespan of a human. Uh, we've kind of put a stop to evolution. Um, so going to Mars would force a, a second human evolution, which I think would be really interesting to see what happens. This podcast is wild. We're all over the place. 
I'm going to read you something, Matt. In my senior year of high school, we had to write a research paper. could be about anything we wanted. And I, for God knows whatever reason, did choose to write about space exploration. The, the general research question was, is it worthwhile bothering to spend our time and resources with this impossible dream of leaving the planet? And uh, after an insightful, brilliant, uh, moving and disturbingly Eurocentric paper that I wrote in my senior year, uh, this is the conclusion. No matter what humanity does, the universe is going to literally rip itself into teeny tiny pieces within a few trillion years. I was a very cheerful high schooler. Admittedly, that's a problem for another day. For now, mankind must focus on... So for now, mankind must focus on finding solutions to the long-term quandaries that threaten its existence. Thousands of years of study have taught us so much about the places beyond our sky, but have failed to discover a single cell of life outside the reaches of our atmosphere. For all we know, Earth is the sole refuge of self-aware organisms in all of existence. That kind of uniquity bears its own responsibility. We as a species have an imperative to survive, to adapt, and to thrive at any cost. Humanity has proven itself capable of inhabiting its own home. Now we must shoulder the burden of leaving the nest. So, are you saying that we have a responsibility to leave Earth, to go to Mars? Well, my own outlook has probably changed a lot in the last four years since I wrote that. Uh, but I think that it is something to think about. I mean... We've been scanning the stars for a while now, and we haven't found a single shred of proof that there might be other living things out there. And meanwhile, on our own planet, I mean, you could fight over the itty-bitty details of this following statement, but we are the only species with advanced sentience where we're, you know, colonizing not just our own planet, but other planets. If nothing in the universe off of earth is able to perceive is uh, if nothing in the universe outside of our own planet is capable of perceiving the existence of the universe the universe might as well not exist it only exists in our minds because we perceive it to be there skip that second part uh, the last bit i, I think I, I made my point did does that make sense so you're saying that the universe only exists because we are able to witness it, and so it is our responsibility to witness it, I guess? Is that what you're saying? Sort of. I'm not, I'm not saying it's Schrodinger's universe. Like, if we stop existing, then if we stop witnessing the universe, it'll cease to exist. But if we stop existing, it might not matter if the universe exists. No living organism can bear witness to the fact that there is, an, there is a universe to live in. It feels kind of circular when I'm saying it out loud, but to me, that's really important. Um, we're the only known spot in the entire universe where we can look out into the sky and see the stars. Yeah, there's a quote, and I'm going to butcher it and i'm sure you can tell me who said it uh but they said that there's it's one of two things either we're alone in the universe or we're not 
And I don't know which one is more sca- more terrifying. Well, evidently, by my I, hypothesis, not being oh. alone is less terrifying than being alone. We can get into aliens and all that, my personal childhood fears, but I don't remember who said that. That could have been... I, I want to say that's Carl Sagan. I yeah. think it was Carl Sagan. Well, we'll say that's Carl Sagan. Maybe good for, good for him. Or... I'll Google it later. So, after it all, you don't want to go to Mars? I, I take it? I proudly and bravely salute the people who will be going to Mars, and I will be waving at them from the ground here. In a swimsuit. And it'll take them 20 to 50 minutes to see your wave. Receive a a message that you waved. Alright, well, I'll message you when I get there, and I'll let you know that I landed. Oh, God, you're going... We'll see what happens. I kind of, I'm kind of intrigued by it. I think it would be a good time. Matt, you don't match all the criteria we mentioned. We got ten years. We'll see what happens. But you're tied down by me. I need you to keep this podcast going. No, we can just do it via text. That'll work, right? I can do it from Mars. Every twenty to forty minutes. Only when the when Mars is in the right spot. We'll make it work. Sounds good. We got ten years to figure it out. Alright, well this has been the pilot experimental episode of the podcast known as Dave. <laughs> I will come up with a better name for Dave later. There is no better name. There is only Dave. <laughs>